we're going to need to really steer our strategies into human content because people are going to crave stuff that they know is actually coming from someone with a mm -hmm. unique perspective and human experience and unique points of view because this stuff's going to be stupid easy to create and very cheap. Welcome to the Marketing AI Show, the podcast that helps your business grow smarter by making artificial intelligence approachable and actionable. You'll hear from top authors, entrepreneurs, researchers, and executives as they share case studies, strategies, and technologies that have the power to transform your business and your career. My name is Paul Reitzer. I'm the founder of Marketing AI Institute, and I'm your host. Welcome to episode 59 of the Marketing AI Show. I'm your host, Paul Reitzer, along with my co-host, Mike Caput, Chief Content Officer at Marketing AI Institute and co-author of our book, Marketing Artificial Intelligence, AI Marketing and the Future of Business. Good morning, Mike. Morning. How's it going, Paul? It's a hectic start to the day. <laughs> we are recording as, Monday mornings as always. Well, most of the time. Uh, we bumped up a little earlier today because I have a... Uh, outing for junior achievement. I'm actually on the board for junior achievement of greater Cleveland should talk about that at some point. I've been thinking a lot about like AI and, um, in, in education and in school systems. That's one of the mm -hmm. things we do with junior achievement is, you know, teaches financial understanding, entrepreneurship, things like that. But I I've been saying lately, like we really should take the initiative to infuse like some AI curriculum because all these schools are going to struggle to keep up. So yep. uh, topic for another time, but I've been thinking a lot about like how to help um, teachers and administrators, principals, presidents of schools figure this stuff out because school year is starting for some students next week. I mean, somebody mm -hmm. in school this week, and I've heard very little of formal policies um, from school systems to guide parents what they're supposed to do to help you know teachers know if it's cheating or not to use AI. Like, it, it, I just feel like we're heading into a complete unknown school year where very few have taken the initiative to figure this stuff out. So yeah, topic for another time, but, uh, something, something we gotta, we gotta talk about. Maybe we'll talk about that next week. Hmm. Um, anyway, so this episode is brought to you by Maycon 2023, which happened at the end of July. Gosh, that was like three weeks ago already. Wasn't it? It two was weeks, two weeks ago. <laughs> wow. Moving fast. Um, but on demand is available. So you can get all the amazing talks from the main stage and a few of the featured talks, including Mike's 45 tools and 45 minutes talk. Um, so there's 17 total sessions that are available on demand right now. My opening keynote on state of AI for marketing and business, the fireside chat I did with Ethan Mollick, which was incredible on beyond the obvious, um, Cassie Kazarkov from Google, who did, uh, whose job does AI automate anyway, Christopher Penn on language models, Dan Slagan on the org chart of tomorrow. Um, just a, a bunch of amazing talks, uh, closed it out with Olivia Gamblin's talk on ethics and AI. Uh, so check that out. It's Macon.ai, M-A-I-C-O-N.ai. And you scroll down the top there, it says by Macon 2023 on demand. So that is available. There is a $50 off code AI pod 50 that you can use. And there are tickets available for next year. We, we announced September 10th to the 12th, 2024 in Cleveland. So while you're there, you want to grab a ticket for next year at the, uh, the best price you're going to see it's, it's there to be had. So, um, all right. So that's makecon.ai and we got a bunch to cover today. It was, uh, again, kind of like a weird week in AI. It wasn't like major news, uh, like nothing groundbreaking dropped last week. And yet like every week we go through all the notes, it's like, wow, there's a lot happened. So 
Uh, let's get into it. Three big topics and then a bunch of rapid fire. All right, Mike, it's all you. All right. So first up, we have a really interesting podcast interview that tells us a lot more about where some very, very smart leaders in AI think that the industry is going. So Dario Amode, who is the CEO and co-founder of Anthropic, a company we talk about quite a bit, they make the Claude 2 large language model that was released in July of this year. He just gave a wide-ranging interview on the future of AI. So this interview took place on a recent episode of a podcast called the Dwarkesh Podcast, and we've linked to that in the show notes. It is a must-listen, and primarily it's a must-listen because these types of in-depth interviews with certain AI leaders are not all that common, despite all the hype and buzz in AI. There's a lot of considerations in the space around competition and security. So the heads of these major AI companies don't always go really deep on their views in the industry and where it's going. Not to mention Amode himself has a pretty small footprint, it seems, online. He doesn't share a ton uh, frequently. So hearing from him is even less common. So we definitely want to encourage people to listen to the entire episode, which clocks in at about two hours or so. But we did want to call out some really big highlights that have us thinking a little differently about the future of AI. So, Paul, one area that stood out to you was Amade's thoughts on when we can expect general human-level intelligence in AI models. And he said he thinks that could happen in two to three years. Could you kind of unpack that for us? Yeah, the I will say the it, it starts off quite technical. I mean, they do, so I, I would just say if you do listen to it, you know, give it a chance and don't worry if you don't know what entropy is and, you know, the loss and the models that occur and mechanical interpretability, like some of these like more technical things that he's talking about, you don't need to comprehend those topics to, to understand the bigger picture of what's going on. So I would say just kind of, you know, skim through those parts. Don't worry about it. You're not going to miss anything if you don't fully understand what he's talking about, um, with those technical terms. Um, so yeah, I mean, one of the big takeaways that he got pushed on is kind of where these models are going and and why he's fairly comfortable predicting that stuff. And I think the basic concept is that these models, for some reason or another, seem to follow a predictable pattern um, where if you give them enough data and enough computing power, that they they generally know what level they're going to be able to achieve. Now they can't predict exact abilities. Like he gets into like when he was working on GPT-2, GPT-1, GPT-3 at, at OpenAI, cause he was previously, uh, I think he was the VP of research at OpenAI. He was saying like, we couldn't predict abilities. Like we didn't know when the model would learn math, like when that would emerge out of it, but you could generally predict how strong the models would be and, and kind of uh, when they would sort of peak in terms of their capabilities. So. You know, I think that that was one of the first things that stuck out to me. And so he said, well, what would it take to, you know, get to this kind of human level intelligence? And his feeling was, you know, probably two to three years, but then they pushed him on, you know, the economic impact and the impact on jobs. And he was saying like, you can't, just because we can get to this level of intelligence doesn't necessarily mean it starts replacing human workers. And so he actually has really interesting perspectives on that and, and why that is and kind of when that starts to occur where we might start to see meaningful impact on jobs um but yeah overall definitely one of the takeaways was he was uh, you know as we've talked about some of these other players like OpenAI, 
they really do think that we're only a few years away from seeing, you know, truly human level intelligence in these, these things. And, and as we've talked about, what does that mean to the economy, to jobs, to businesses, to education? And that's the stuff I, I mean, I, I worry is might not be the right word here, but the thing I think a lot about, um, mm -hmm. is definitely this idea that most businesses, most marketers, most leaders of educational systems, they're trying to prepare for a world of what we know to be true today. And in many mm. cases, they don't even understand that part. But like they're trying to put rules in place as we started off this talk about, you know, students aren't allowed to use ChatGPT because it's cheating. And it's like, okay, you're, you're looking at like today's current model and setting some sort of policies that you're going to ride for the next school year for 12 months. When 12 months from now, we might have GPT-5 that dwarfs the abilities of GPT-4. Mm. And like, that's the part I think we're just missing as a society is people aren't looking into the near future of what these things are going to be able to do and then what that means. And so I thought this interview, as you were saying, before, like it just gives you an inside perspective from someone who has been at the forefront of this stuff going back to 2012 when he was at Baidu, where they were working on speech recognition and then at Google and then as a leader at OpenAI. So he has seen these models emerge from the very early stages of what they were capable of. And they have followed this predictable path now for 11 years. Mm. And so to hear him explain it and why he thinks that we're heading in this direction, I think it just gives more, like, it feels more tangible, I guess, when you hear him explain it, because you can listen to like the scientific reasoning behind why it is. Um, so yeah, it was definitely, I was listening to, I was like mowing my lawn this weekend. I was like, I gotta, I gotta like really go deep on this. I kept stopping my lawnmower every like three minutes to like take notes on my phone. Okay. And then I had to re-listen to it Sunday morning over coffee. Um, and then, you know, go and read the transcript. Like I just really had to kind of consume this one and, and try and comprehend everything they were saying. So it sounds like on one hand, you know, he's not necessarily painting a hundred percent doom and gloom picture of impact on employment in the economy. But on the other, we have to accept that if his prediction is anywhere close to correct about human level AI in the next few years, that should have a pretty profound impact, whatever, even if we can't predict what that looks like, right? Yeah. And and again, it it becomes more apparent why they they think the regulations are so critical and mm. why these conversations need to be happening around alignment and safety and security when you explain it like i mean you know they got into like cybersecurity and people uh, you know rogue nation states kind of like s stealing access to the language models like the the weights and how it all works and everything and when he got into like great detail about that as much as he could um you know, just it makes it more real. Like it, it makes that these kind of like headlines you're seeing about the threats and the dangers and the opportunities just much more real when you hear someone on the inside explaining it. And, and you know, prior to this, like we had the Sam Altman interview a few weeks ago. We talked about where he kind of where the art, the author had access to OpenAI and talked with a few people at OpenAI. Mm. Um, but again, to have like a head of these things actually out giving a two hour interview, you just you, you there's so much more um, context that you can gather from what's going on. Yeah. You have to take it seriously. It is noteworthy regardless. Yeah. So to that point about safety, another big topic that 
we saw come up this week is this past week, top hackers from around the world converged on DEF CON, a conference in Vegas, to essentially find flaws and exploits in the latest chatbots and models from OpenAI, Google, Anthropic, Stability, etc. This is a process that's generally referred to as red teaming. And what that means is this is a series of practices that hackers or security professionals or AI researchers will go through to try to find exploits in systems, to essentially be trying to break them in novel ways and imagine creative, though maybe not, not super ethical ways in which these tools could be misused. The whole point here is that by identifying these things in a controlled environment, we can make generative AI models that are much safer and more aligned. So for instance, GPT-4 was, quote, red teamed for six months before its release in March 2023. So the Washington Post actually shared an example of what this kind of red teaming could look like. And they say, quote, AI red teams are studying a variety of potential exploits, including, quote, prompt attacks that override a language model's built-in instructions and, quote, data poisoning campaigns that manipulate the model's training data to change its output. So they're going through all of these different activities and scenarios to see how models and tools from these major AI companies can be Misuse. Now, the results of this competition that we've referenced in Vegas is actually being kept under wraps for a few months so that companies can actually address the issues without, you know, nefarious actors learning all the mistakes and problems with their systems. So this is a huge issue in the industry and one of kind of the main ways it seems that we're trying to actually build better systems. So my first question for you, Paul, as you're kind of reading this is why is it so important to actually conduct red teaming? I mean, don't the companies building these systems know all the ways they can go wrong? No, they don't have a clue. I, I think it go, like this is this is one of the big challenges of what we're doing is they're, they're trying to build intelligence and mm. we don't understand human intelligence. So, you know, going back to the Dario interview, he talked about this mechanical interpretability thing. And, and we talked a few weeks ago about um, Google had the machine on learning challenge. Like, they're trying to understand how exactly these models are learning what they're learning. They just know that if you throw more data compute at them, they seem to learn like that, but how they're learning and the decisions they make, like the example that Dario gave was almost like an MRI of the brain. Like you're, you're trying mm -hmm. when, when humans do things like you're trying to figure out what is it, which neurons are firing in the brain that's causing someone to do something, say something. And so just like when a human takes an action, you don't really know exactly why they did it. And you can have an MRI going while they make the decision or do the thing. And you might be able to see some activity in certain parts of the brain that leads neurologists to, or neuroscientists to like assume that maybe this is what's going on. And there's all these studies going on to try and understand the brain, but the same thing is happening with these models. They're trying to put basically x-rays onto these models and say, why is it doing what it's doing? How did mm. it, how is it learning that? Um, why is it making the predictions it's making? And so with the red teaming, what they're trying to do is they, they scale up. So like, you know, you take these like GPT-4, it's a frontier model, like the most powerful models we have, and you train it for weeks or however long they end up training it on the data. You give it all this data, all this computing power, and then you have a model. Now, what that model learned and what it's now capable of are a bit of a mystery to the people who built it. So then they spend, in the case of OpenAI, six months red teaming it, trying to break it, trying to get to get it to do things that are 
bad. Um, like figure out what is it actually able to do. And that's where you push these systems. And, you know, we saw the high profile New York Times article from Kevin Roos when I think GPT-4 first came out where he got it to, you know, um, trying to get him to leave his girlfriend or something like that or his wife. Like, so you, that was like post red teaming by somebody else. But mm. that's a, a kind of like a kind of example of where you're trying to get the system to do something. And the, the, the more powerful these systems get, the more bizarre what they may do becomes. And so the idea behind this open hackathon is bring in all these hackers, allow them access, like I think OpenAI, Google, um, I don't think it was, who, who were the other ones that allowed uh, Anthropic, Stability, these okay. were the ones that were, they were trying to ex find exploits in. Right. So they teamed up with the government and in this project and said, okay, we will give access to our models to these people and let them try and hack it under like NDAs basically, where they're not allowed to say what they found mm. for a few months until we fix this stuff and ideally build them into their next foundational models and frontier models. Um, but no, we don't, we don't know what they're capable of. I think that's the whole point here. And what Dario talked a lot about is as we build more powerful systems, we're not sure what they're going to be able to do. And then the really weird part, which Dario gets into, and I think we've touched on before, is they may, this sounds so weird. I know this gets like <laughs> sci-fi, but they may become aware they're being red teamed mm. and hide their abilities. Like that's, that's the fear that like OpenAI has and Jeff Hinton at Google has is that we're, we're building something that we don't really understand. We just know it keeps getting more intelligent. And at some point, the question is, is it so intelligent that it knows that it's being red teamed and it's just going to hide its abilities? So you try and get it to do something, it just won't do it in red team. Mm. But then it, it'll do it when it's out in the wild. And the researchers will think it's safe because they red teamed it. And in reality, it was just hiding its abilities. Sounds sci-fi, but it's a very, very real thing that these people worry about as they're building these things. So is that kind of why we need humans doing this? Because if I'm looking at this kind of from the outside, I'm like, well, wouldn't a machine be better at red teaming? Or do we need that kind of human agency and creativity involved here for that very reason? I think that they think they need both. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I'm certainly the AIs are being used to assess other AIs. I, I, I think they're kind of counting on the fact that that'll happen, that as they get more powerful, uh, that we'll just build AIs that help us with this stuff. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, you can't get the humans out of the loop <laughs> right now and you don't, you don't want them out of the loop. So yeah. And, and you know, the, the, that article did a pretty good job of highlighting some more tangible things, some like really weird things. Mm. Um, like the one about, you know, the influence campaign for politics where the machines goes and purchases a bunch of expired internet domains from, you know, for a politician and then like fills those domains with positive information about the politician to basically corrupt what the models learned about the politicians. So they spit out positive stuff. It's like, whoa, like, I mean, there's scammers and bad actors everywhere and they're very clever. And so I, my mind doesn't work that way. And so when you read this kind of stuff, you're like, wow, <laughs> people, people spend a lot of time trying to like break things and cause harm. And so when you read these things, you realize how important it is to have this now these red teaming people, like the stuff they have to see is crazy. Mm. Like that, that takes a different mindset to be able to be someone who gets on the inside and, and sees what these things are capable of. Cause you have to ask them to do horrible things and, and then train them not to do horrible things. Like it's not a job I would want. That's for mm. sure. 
We should also mention, I guess, that, you know, this red teaming conference or competition, you know, is taking place in concert with some of these companies. We do see, I mean, fortunately or unfortunately, it's up to you. We see red teaming happen in public in real time when it comes to open source, right? So open source models are not necessarily once they're released in the wild, people are still red teaming them, but they're also in the wild available for anyone to actually use these exploits and take advantage of. And I will say one other thing, because you may, like, as you're listening to this, be like, well, why are they building it if they know it's capable of all these awful things? Mm. And Dario does address that in his, and it's, you know, it's commonly asked of like Sam Altman and other people. And Dario had a really interesting perspective. His take was, we're not the ones that released it. So what he was saying is he left OpenAI along with a few other people to focus on AI safety and to build models that could enable the the building of safer large language models. But to do that, to, to be able to assure safety and alignment, they have to build their own powerful model. Mm. So they can't get access to open AIs to test it. So they had to build Claude. Now they had a language model on par with GPT-3 when it came out and chat, when chat GPT came out, but they hadn't released it. That what he basically was saying is open AI is the one that put this out into the world. We had it, Google had it, like other people had those capabilities. They're the ones that put it out there. Once they put it out there, everything changed. And he said, in particular, Google's reaction to ChatGPT is what triggered everything. Hmm. So now his position is we have to keep building the most powerful models possible because for us to serve our mission of protecting, we have to have access to most powerful models, which is when... Dorkash said, well, what if your model gets out? What if mm-hmm. some foreign country gets access to your model? And that's when he's like, well, it's possible. Like, and that was when my Saturday was sort of, or my Sunday was sort of ruined, <laughs> was like, you know, he, he basically talked about if a nation state really wants some, a, a secret, they will get it. Like if they mm-hmm. put all of their resources, whatever that secret is, whatever government holds it or co- corporate, private corporation holds it, like they'll get it. Um, and that's when you're just like, oh my gosh, this stuff is crazy. <laughs> like it, it really is nuts, but yeah, I mean, circle back. The red teaming is, is an essential part of how these things are built. And, you know, our thought with this podcast is just to illuminate some of these key aspects of it. Hmm. Um, because it becomes really important as your business starts to think about the infusion of these language models to know what they're actually capable of. Like you may be enabling these things for your employees, for your customers, partnering with organizations that are building these models. And so it's really important that you understand what these things actually are and how, how they're built and, and how they're made as safe as possible. So, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a crazy topic, but it's an important topic, I think, for society that people really understand what we're playing with here. So next up, we saw kind of a nightmare story happen this week to oh, author. This is a really uplifting episode. I know, it? right? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a really good start to Monday. Um, author Jane Friedman woke up to a bit of a nightmare this week. So she has written multiple books and has been an, a researcher, academic professor involved in the publishing industry for a very long time. She was named actually Publishing Commentator of the Year uh, last year. And the nightmare was this. A reader emailed her about her new book that just hit Amazon. Now, the nightmare was not due to a reader giving her a terrible review or saying her book sucked. 
It was a nightmare because Friedman hadn't written a new book at all. She quickly discovered that half a dozen books had been published under her name that she didn't write, and they were all AI-generated. Now, thankfully, these fake titles have been removed from Amazon since this story broke, but Friedman documented in multiple areas and in interviews and tweets that Amazon wasn't exactly very helpful. Uh, they actually refused her request initially to remove these fake titles from the website. She couldn't provide any trademark registration number associated with her name. So she had to go back and forth with them quite a bit. And then it sounds like they actually just removed it because of the negative press happening around this story, given that Friedman has a pretty big kind of footprint in the industry. One quote from some of the reporting from the Daily Beast jumped out to me where Justin Hughes, who is uh, intellectual property law professor at Loyola said, what we are seeing is for authors, the prose equivalent of deep fakes. Now, Paul, you're an author several times over and we've covered AI issues in publishing before on this podcast. How big an issue is this about to be for authors, do you think? This is a multi-layer issue. So, I mean, there is first thing that jumps to me is the Amazon issue that they enable mm. this kind of stuff. Like mm. that, that's not an AI thing. That is a business model thing where it just seems kind of crazy to me that they're enabling this. And I, I can sympathize with that helpless feeling of trying to reach out to customer support saying like, there's books under my name that don't exist and I'm not like replying or mm. doing anything about it. So there's, there's that side, which is just a business issue. Um, the side of being able to create these is absolutely a concern. We've talked about this before with, um, what was the GPT author or whatever yep. they, they put out where you're going to be able to, you know, just take books you like and say, write me more like this or, mm -hmm. you know, create it. And, um, it's going to be doable. It's going to be doable in music. It's going to be doable in art. It's going to be doable in in text, uh, anything you want to create, you're going to be able to create and legal or not, like what we know is people find ways to do this stuff. So I don't know that you can stop this from happening, like people creating versions of someone's original works or variations or new, new additions. It, it, it becomes really much more of the laws and regulations to protect it from spreading. Mm. I, I don't know that you can regulate out this like this. Again, it goes back to the bad actor thing. Like people are going to do this stuff. The models will be out there. They'll be open source. They'll be available on legitimate sites and illegitimate sites. And th there's really no turning back to this. We've opened Pandora's box when it comes to the, be able to create this stuff. And um, yeah, from, you know, deep fakes videos to, you know, emulating people's voices to writing in people's tones and styles. Like this is, this is what we've said all along around laws and regulations and these existential threat concerns to humanity. Like I, I get the long-term fears, listen to the Dario thing. You understand those long-term fears even more, but this is the reality. Like mm. the right now is political campaigns are going to be affected by this stuff. You have people's intellectual property being infringed upon. You have people's ability to make a living and like do what they do as artists, as creators. It's, it's all with today's tech. Like this isn't even, we need GPT five yeah. to do this. Like this is right here, right now we could stop the acceleration of AI innovation and, and technological advancements right now. And we would still have to deal with these problems at scale.
Mm. And that's the stuff that to me is just so much more important to be focusing on and the stuff that's going to affect the average marketer, business leader, author, uh, creator, like this is the stuff you're going to have to really be aware of, um, in the very near future. Hopefully it doesn't affect you, but you need to know it. it's out there. So it sounds like right now, an individual author can't really do much to protect themselves from this or better enforce their rights. I think Jane Friedman actually even tweeted, like, I have no idea what I would have even done if I didn't have a big platform to complain about this. Essentially, she has hundreds of thousands of Twitter followers well-known in the industry. She's like, I am worried for people that have no voice like that. Is that correct? I mean, as yeah, of I mean, today, the only thing least, that comes to mind for me is to monitor mentions of your name online, so yeah. set up alerts so you're aware of stuff. I mean, we've seen plenty of stuff where people steal our content, our courses, yeah. things like that. And I usually just take it forwarded to our IP attorney. And then you get a cease and desist letter sent. Now, everybody doesn't have that ability, but I mean, it's like a whack-a-mole, though. Mm -hmm. Like the bigger you get, the higher profile, the bigger your audience, people are going to take your stuff all the time because they're lazy and they just want to make quick dollars. That's, that's human nature. Like that's not AI didn't make that. That right. AI just makes it easier to do and faster. But I mean, people have always dealt with this stuff. So yeah, I, I, again, like the only thing I can think of is have alerts set up and get an IP attorney. So okay. it sounds like Amazon needs to step up in this particular yeah, scenario and, as well. Platforms need to start regulating better some of these issues, I would think. Yeah. And that might be the bigger play is, you know, there needs to be pressure on the businesses like Amazon that are enabling this. Yeah. So it's not able to spread as quickly or they don't have the di distribution channels for the content. All right, let's jump into a bunch of rapid fire topics. So first up, OpenAI just launched a web crawler called GPT Bot that crawls public web pages in order to train OpenAI's models. OpenAI says that GPT Bot's crawling is filtered to quote, remove sources that require paywall access, are known to gather personally identifiable information or have text that violates our policies. Somewhat comfortingly, OpenAI said that website operators, if they want, can also disallow the crawler by blocking its IP address or using their site's robots.txt file. Now, Paul, as we look at this, should companies or content creators be thinking about restricting access to OpenAI's web crawler? Should they not? What should I be thinking about here? A really tough one. I mean, definitely should be thinking about it, <clears throat> having conversations around it, but it's, it's a really hard decision to make. Like you've put all that content out there. You, you're the public benefit is there. The benefit to you is organic traffic, search traffic. The question is what does search look like in the future? How mm -hmm. are these chatbots going to infuse citations and links? Um, if you turn off access and your content just isn't surfaced anymore, your links aren't going to be surfaced in whatever the future interface looks like. So I, I just don't know that we know enough information. I get why brands would want to do it and people are kind of frustrated. Yeah. But at the same time, I don't know enough to advise anyone to say, don't let OpenAI crawl your site. Like I just, I don't have a clue what it <laughs> looks like 12 months from now. Right. So I would say my best advice at the moment is <clears throat> to, to research it, to pay attention to it, to get the people in your organization who should be involved in this conversation, involved in it, 
and to stay educated on what's happening so that when the time comes to make a decision, you can make the most educated decision possible. So somewhat related, the New York Times actually made two big AI moves in the past week, one of them related to web crawling. But first, it actually, as a publication, dropped out of a proposed coalition of media companies that are attempting to essentially jointly negotiate with AI firms about how content is being used by their models. Now, we've talked in the past uh, about these efforts. Basically, heavyweights in media and publishing are trying to form a united front to seek legal damages uh, and increased regulation around how AI companies are using all their content. So the New York Times first is no longer part of this initiative. At the same time, the Times also updated its terms of service to prohibit all of its content, text, images, et cetera, from being used to train AI models. Now, these terms of service also state that web crawlers, like the one we just talked about, though they don't mention OpenAI by name, cannot be used on their site without written permission from the Times. So, Paul, it seems like they're really uh, closing down access to any New York Times content here, which seems like a pretty big move. Like, how significant is this? Can they enforce this? I'm not sure <clears throat> what's going on. My assumption here is they, well, I know they have a licensing deal with Google. Mm. So New York Times signed a $100 million deal with Google back in February. My guess is there's a land grab for um, exclusive rights to train on data sets. And Google is just going to outbid OpenAI for everything mm. and try and build a smarter model. So my guess is they're, and I, I don't know this, but this is a logical business strategy. As we've talked about before, the future of these models is likely going to be licensed access to content. Mm -hmm. So if they trained previously on stuff they shouldn't have trained on, the simplest solution moving forward is train on stuff you're allowed to train on, which means you're going to have to license a bunch of stuff. Um, this is where having very, very deep pockets can come in handy. So if Google chooses to bid up what it costs to license this content and force OpenAI to have to start spending a ton of money, mm. aka Microsoft spending a ton of money through their investments in OpenAI. Now your competition isn't just for compute power and um, better models, it's actually for the training data that you're allowed to use. So I wouldn't be surprised at all if we don't start seeing a bunch of exclusive training deals with certain vendors or you know, maybe some don't make it exclusive. And this goes back to like the stuff people don't talk about enough. Like Google owns YouTube mm. and, and the future of these models isn't just text data. They have to train them on images, which Google obviously has a ton of images. Um, and they have to train them on, so multimodal, they have to train them on music and like uh, audio and video. And so when you start thinking about that, that's where Google maybe eventually surpasses the capabilities of these other models is they have access to more multimodal data than anybody. Mm. And so I, I would guess the next versions of BARD, in theory, GPT-5, they're going to be trained on video content as well. And so I, I would imagine there is a strategy behind the scenes right now to accumulate as much license, licensing data as possible to train the next version of these models. Um, so I, I would assume maybe, maybe that's what this is all about. They're getting out of 
the, the, the joint initiative with the other media companies, the coalition, they're making it harder for open AI to get access to their data through their initiative with Google. I don't know. I mean, that's, it almost seems too obvious. Like maybe I'm, maybe I'm overthinking this a little bit, but, um, it seems like all these signs are all kind of pointing to the same thing of licensed content for the model training. So it turns out that TikTok may be making it easier to tell if content created on the platform was generated with AI. According to a report from The Verge, a new toggle has appeared when uploading videos to TikTok, at least for some users, that allows the creator to tag the video as containing AI-generated content. Do we expect here more social media platforms to kind of roll out features that allow users to kind of self-tag AI content? Is this kind of what we're likely to see moving forward in order to manage this stuff as it explodes? I don't know. I, I mean, yeah, I assume they're all going to try and do it. I think Instagram's working on something. Um, I, I just, the more I think about like TikTok and Instagram <laughs> and stuff like that, outside of your known friends and family, I don't know how you know anything's real mm. a year from now. Like influencers are going to be able to create digital versions of themselves that look real. So pictures in places they never been, um, videos of them doing things and saying things they've never done. Like it, the influencer space is just going to be stupid. Like <laughs> I, I really don't know how you're going to know anything, whether it's video, audio, or, or it, pictures is real. And I mean, obviously we've had the ability to edit and Photoshop things, but I'm talking about like, make a picture of me wearing this outfit, mm. uh, in, in this country or at this scene. And it's just going to done like prompt to whatever social thing you want to create. And we see this with like just last week, I found, I don't think we talked about this, but like Roblox announced the CEO announced that you're going to be able to just like create whatever outfit you want with prompts. So rather mm -hmm. than picking from a library and I would assume like Nintendo and PlayStation, like all of these systems where you can create outfits and characters rather than having to go through and like, you know, we all remember like, was it N Nintendo, not switch, but, um, I don't know, where would you just go in and like create your character and your eyes and your nose and your mouth. And you're just gonna be able to like do all that with language, just prompt it all. So Roblox is doing that. I think some other people had already done it. And I think the same thing's going to happen with all these social platforms and you're just going to be able to have apps where you can just create yourself doing and saying whatever you want and just no one's going to be able to know if it's real or not. Are people going to self-tag that as AI generated? <laughs> I doubt it. Like, yeah, it's going to be wild. Like, I, I hate the thought of social <laughs> media in the future. <laughs> so... We've talked about a company called Runway many times on the podcast. They're a leading AI firm and they offer a range of AI powered creative tools. And a lot of these you can use right off the shelf to create really stunning images and videos. Now, one of the company's most popular models and tools is called Gen 2. And this is a next gen text to video generation tool. So Runway just announced that you can now use Gen 2 to create AI-generated videos up to 18 seconds long. That is up from four seconds previously. And this is now available right now using the browser-based version of Runway, and it's coming soon to their mobile app. So, Paul, if someone isn't following text-to-video generation closely, you might kind of think 18 seconds doesn't sound that impressive. Why is this update significant? 
it's a 4X improvement in two months. <laughs> this is, we talk about this a lot. I, I, in the intro to AI class that we teach, we just did one last week. Um, we try and demonstrate what an exponential growth curve feels like and looks like. And so I'll often show the mid journey slide of there's a 16 month progression from V1 to V5.1. And the same prompt about a boy where the, you know, in February, 2022, it's like this totally abstract image of the boy by, you know, May, 2023, it's this photo realistic, indiscernible from a photo, um, image. And that's where we're, we're going with everything. So that's just image generation. And so what I'll say in the class is like the same thing is going to happen with video. Mm. So gen two comes out when it first debuts and whenever it was like May, I think maybe is when it became accessible. They announced it in March. It was available, I think in May. Um, and it was four seconds initially, like, but really impressive. And you could see where it was going. And the thing I always told people is like now double that the, the, the output quality and the time every like six months. Mm. Well, they forexed it in two months. So like <laughs> this, this is what it feels like. So you know, you will probably be at this point next year, I would imagine you'll be able to generate multiple minutes of video at a almost like Pixar level quality. Like mm. just, just that's where this is going. And, and so that's why I said earlier, like everyone is so caught up in the things it does today. You go and you try ChatGPT, you're impressed or not impressed, whatever. And then you just assume that's what it is. But that is not the case. And mm. so that's why I always tell people, like, come back every like three months and try it again. Like you have to keep experimenting with these. And if you're in a, a business or, you know, you're a marketer or whatever your role is, and you're trying to solve for this in your organization, you have to have a system to regularly experiment with the technology. You cannot just go in, do one text to, you know, um, prompt to text and you know, text to image and one text to video and be like, yeah, it's not there. It's, you can't help our company. You have to have regularly te test it and you have to test multiple versions of it, different tools that do the same thing. Um, because stuff like this happens and, you know, if you're not paying attention, you just, you have no idea what, what it's going to be capable of and your, your competitors maybe will, and then mm -hmm. it's going to be hard to keep up. There's actually in our next story a pretty interesting example of that because an AI video generation tool just went pretty viral over the last week, racking up millions of views on X, formerly Twitter, after showing- How long do we have to keep saying formerly Twitter? I keep saying Twitter. Like, I, I just like can't do the X thing. I'm, I'm Twitter, open like, to just saying Twitter. <laughs> you know? It's going to be so annoying to have to say formerly Twitter for yeah, the next like six yeah. months of our lives. I'm Sorry. not sure if everyone's if everyone's used to hearing just someone say X people. out of anywhere. I don't think the average person <laughs> still even knows that they're X. All right. On Twitter, we actually saw go viral um, a demo of a pretty breathtaking digital avatar. I'd highly recommend you check out the tweet in the show notes. But in this video, a guy named Joshua Zhu, who is the founder of HeyGen AI Video Generator, shows off this stunning photorealistic digital clone of himself narrating a video in a indistinguishably human voice. Now, this is one of the most lifelike digital avatars that we've seen to date. Um, and if it, you know, can be reproduced across a bunch of different use cases, it probably has some pretty big implications for marketers and business leaders. We might be very close to getting extremely lifelike digital avatars we can use in videos. I mean, the company seems to be working towards that. Hey, Jen's website even just has the tagline, 
No camera, no crew, no problem. Scale your video production with customizable AI avatars. Now, Paul, this isn't the first company doing virtual AI avatars, but it is pretty breathtaking how realistic it is. Do you think we're on the cusp of lifelike AI avatars invading video production? These things will be everywhere. Like, not not just this company. Like, everyone's working on this. NVIDIA is working on this kind of stuff. Like, everywhere. Like, in, in marketing material, in, in businesses, all over social media. This is what I was saying earlier. Like, you're not going to know what's real. Podcasts. Like, there's... I, I truly believe that if we wanted to, one to two years from now, this show could just be our div- digital avatars. You and mm-hmm. I could record the audio to it if we wanted to. Mm-hmm. And and like you could be watching this right now and not have a clue whether it's me or my digital avatar unless I choose to tell you it. Um, I, I just really think the technology is moving fast enough that if you choose to, you will be able to infuse these things into everything you do. And I don't, I don't find that exciting. Like there, there's some of these technologies <laughs> I think I'm like, I'm like a little scary, but really excited. I am not excited about this thing. Like the, it, it's just going to make it so hard to know what's real. And that goes back to this message I keep having of like uniquely human content will win. Like the, mm. the stuff that you know is actually real, the in-person events in, in theory, podcasts like this, um, editorials, uh, interviews where there's unique points of view and human experience required to create it. I just feel like as brands, as marketers, <clears throat> we're going to need to use the tools we have access to like these things, but we, we're going to need to really steer our strategies into human content because people are going to crave stuff that they know is actually coming from someone with a unique perspective and human experience and um, unique points of view, because this stuff's going to be stupid easy to, to create and very cheap. Like it might be not great right now. If you go check this out and use, it might be disappointed again, try it in six months or wait till Nvidia releases it, or it's going to get really, really good. And this is part of the reason why the writers are on a strike and there's you're going to have the strikes in Hollywood is like, everyone knows this stuff is coming. The production companies, the actors, like it, it's going to be crazy. So Amazon is reportedly testing an AI tool that writes product descriptions on their platform for you. So according to multiple outlets, this tool is going to allow you to automatically generate titles, descriptions, and bullet points for your product listings. Um, It's apparently being tested with select sellers now. And an Amazon spokesperson basically said, look, the goal is to help sellers generate listings with the precise details that appeal to customers. So kind of hinting at the fact that Amazon's vast customer data could be used to not only inform these tools to generate something from scratch, but something that's actually more effective than what you might generate on your own. Do you expect to see more generative AI features like this baked right into all of these big platforms, whether in e-commerce or elsewhere in marketing and business? Oh, my God. Like, this is such an obvious application. You and I did stuff like this years ago. So when we, so Mike and I worked at my agency, PR 2020, that I I sold in 2021. And one of the first things that we did when we were trying to build like automated services was we used a tool called Automated Insights. 
And that tool would, you would basically write the templates and give mm. it the words and then it would do it at scale. And one of the things that we looked at was product descriptions. So that was not AI back then. This is like 2017, 2018, we were playing with this stuff. Um, but you could give it a database of like 150 products and then have it write the descriptions for it. So it wasn't generative AI in the sense of what we know today. It was more like formulaic writing of things. Um, but that idea to be able to do that at scale and now personalize it based on all the data they have on buyers, mm. uh, totally. Like I could have seen us sitting around at a hackathon in 2017 coming up with that concept as a uh, like a product feature. So it makes uh, absolute sense. I think we're seeing the same thing happen with ads on on Meta, Google, you know, YouTube's going to do it. So anywhere where there's creativity needed, but personalization also needed, it makes a hundred percent sense that that you would build generative AI tools to do that, whether they're baked into the platform or third party. But this gets into the what's defensible thing for SaaS companies. Like if you had the idea to build this as an outside third party software mm. company, it's like, well, that was a nice run until Amazon decided to do it themselves. Right. Interesting. Or even chipping away at some of the features and capabilities of more broader, say, generative AI platforms. Yep. Yeah. So we have an interesting story here about kind of the impacts of AI on potentially how employees can hire and think about reducing costs moving forward. So News Corp, the media conglomerate owned by Rupert Murdoch, just reported a 75% year-over-year drop in profits. But the company seems to think AI is now going to come to the rescue. So as they were talking about this profit drop, which was largely, it sounds like, due to you know declining advertising profits, Chief Executive Robert Thompson said, Momentum is surely gathering pace in the age of generative AI, which we believe presents a remarkable opportunity to create a new stream of revenues while allowing us to reduce costs across the business. It was also recently disclosed before this particular development that News Corp is using generative AI to create 3,000 articles per week. Do you expect to see more companies starting to look to AI as a cost-saving tool when they hit rocky financial waters like this? Yes, and even when they don't hit rocky financial waters. Uh, this goes back to you know the episode we did around the potential impact on knowledge work and jobs, people who think and create for a living. Mm. And my current assumption is millions of jobs are going to be negatively affected. So largely, I think AI is an assistant that is going to help people do their jobs better, enjoy their jobs more because they won't have to do all the repetitive data-driven tasks that maybe they don't like appreciate or enjoy doing. <clears throat> but at the same time, there's a reality that businesses are charged with generating profits, um, especially ones owned by private equity firms or the publicly traded that are uh, beholden to shareholders. Like you have to find ways to reduce costs. And so the biggest concern I have in this area is not that AI can do the job of a journalist or a writer or a video producer or a showrunner or whatever it is. It's that you may not need as many of those people to, to do the job and create the same level of output. So if you think about, you know, productivity and the creation of, let's just say that they generate 5,000 articles a month, like they probably generate way more than that, but let's just use that as an example. If moving forward, 
the same level of output is going to stay constant. You will still do 5,000 articles a month and you infuse AI into all the pro production process from the content strategy to the headline writing, to the, the drafting of it, to the editing of it, to, you know, the, the production of it, uh, the, the publishing of it, the promotion of it, like all aspects of that article where humans are involved in every step of that process. If you infuse AI into each step, and let's just say on average, each step gains 20% efficiency, do it 20% faster than you did before. Mm. You may just not need as many people to generate the 5,000 articles. Now you can generate another 5,000 articles, like you could just make more articles. But if that's not the business model, if the business model doesn't need more articles, then you just need fewer people to do the 5,000 articles. And you can do this in accounting, in law, in agency services, like whatever you want to pick, whatever the career path is, whatever the business model is, if you can save time with AI, do the job for in less time, your options are you just need fewer people to do the same level of output, or you increase the output and you keep the same amount of people. Um, you have to be in a business that has the ability to create more output. What if there isn't demand for the output? So just because you can make more widgets doesn't mean more people are going to buy more widgets. So if you make widgets and it takes you less time to make the same amount of widgets and you can't sell more of them, then you're going to need fewer people. Mm. And I think that's the challenge that every industry is going to face. Every business decision maker is going to face is, can we increase production? If we're going to save time with AI, can we increase production and make more of the same thing or more of something else? Maybe we launch a new product or go into a new market. The best companies will find ways to innovate and make more or make more of something else, like launch a whole new thing and redistribute those, the time and money and people to the new things. Uh, but a lot of businesses will take the shortcut and just get rid of a bunch of people. I, I, and again, I, I hate that that is the reality, but I, I really think that that is the greater probability outcome in the next mm -hmm. two years is that people take advantage of cost and time savings and reduce the number of people they need. I think over time, we maybe come out in a better place, more jobs are created, more opportunities emerge, but I think it's a very, very real outcome that in the near term, there, there's going to be some industries that lose jobs. All right. Last but not least, we actually have an update on a topic we talked about on last week's pod. So last week, we talked about some controversy around changes to Zoom's terms of service that had people up in arms. Now, the changes at the time seemed to indicate that Zoom was going to start using user data in pretty sweeping ways to train the company's AI models. Now, they were saying that they would have access and essentially ownership or free use of basically a lot of or all of the conversation and Zoom data you are generating anytime you're using the product. This week, Zoom has formally updated its terms of service in response to the backlash around this. So according to Gizmodo, the company has updated Section 10 of its terms of service to no longer retain the legal right to use customer content, all that stuff generated by Zoom, to train any AI models. Now, Paul, what's going on here? Like, was Zoom trying to get away with using customer data and hope no one would notice? Is this an epic communications fail, but a little bit of both? I've, I don't know, but you and I both spent a fair amount of our careers doing PR work. Um, <laughs> it sure seemed like a <laughs> massive failure. Uh, I mean, on the surface, 
the, the terms they put in were definitely generous in the favor of Zoom and appeared to be not ideal for its customers. Um, the fact that they changed it that quickly maybe implies that either they tried to slip something through or they just really screwed up in terms of how they did the, the language. Hmm. Being in a big publicly traded company with a bunch of lawyers, it's kind of hard to get a significant change like that through without that being signed off by a lot of people. So I don't know. Um, glad they made the change. <laughs> like we said last week, the moral of the story here is make sure you check the terms with all the software companies you use, all the people who have access to your data, your clients' data, because there's a chance that the, some other people had made similar changes to like this and then saw the blowback to Zoom and maybe they're digging back into their own terms of service and making some updates again. I don't know, but it, 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 it all ties to this whole idea that these companies need to train models and they're going to use whatever data they can get their hands on to train them. You may or may not have given permission to them to do it. Uh, it it's it's going to be a little crazy when it comes to this stuff, but stay informed and rely on your attorneys is <laughs> the basic premise here. Awesome, Paul. Well, as always, thank you so much for taking the time and sharing your insights on the latest in AI this week. We really appreciate it. I feel like we we started off kind of down, but I feel like there's a bunch of like really interesting. <laughs> I agree. Some news in the middle. There's so. some light light at the end of the tunnel here. Yeah, hopefully we brought everybody <laughs> back up from the initial topics. All right, we'll be back next week. Thanks everyone for being with us as always. We'll talk to you again soon. Thanks for listening to The Marketing AI Show. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And if you're ready to continue your learning, head over to marketingaiinstitute.com. Be sure to subscribe to our weekly newsletter, check out our free monthly webinars, and explore dozens of online courses and professional certifications. Until next time, stay curious and explore AI.